So Kyle, tell us about your microphone today. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. You want to talk about it? I That's forgot my bad. microphone, so we had to jimmy a, our own thing here. So we spent probably 15 minutes using a professional-grade mic stand that didn't fit with the mic <laughs> until one of us, who will remain nameless, had the idea that we could literally punch a hole in a box and shove the mic through it. Um, it was Zane. He needs the credit. <laughs> Zane Ronald Swanson. <laughs> The face I made at the time was probably very Ron Swanson. Yes, it All was. right, move, crunch. Mm-hmm. But and anyway, just Kyle is talking to a box currently. Yes. And but it's a my fault for forgetting my microphone, so it's fine. This is human intelligence. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. All right, Kyle, I've got a joke that isn't quite a joke for you, but, oh, like, no, we're going to okay. pretend it's a joke. So I'm going to tell it in the meter of a joke, <laughs> okay. but it's not funny. I'm a dad. <laughs> oh, so the dad joke. I don't know. It's like if Nancy Pelosi told a dad joke, I guess. So if this is a dad joke, you will for sure hear Mike laughing in the background. Just, But it'll be like that muffled, <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh, but I'm biting my finger off yeah. in the process laugh. Right. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> All right. How can you tell America's about to go to war, Kyle? I don't know. The CIA is training rebels in another country. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, but for real. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I today I want to talk about something that is, is rather interesting. So have you guys ever heard of a guy named Win I Cook? I'm sorry. Can you say it one word at a time? Win. Okay. I. Okay. Cook. Think and is it just the letter I? I'm not spelling like, it. Okay. <laughs> um, but like, like literally like when I cook, think like, think that you could hear like Frank Sinatra, when I cook, think about that way, you know, okay. something, something along those lines. So okay. when I cook was actually a Vietnamese national, um, born and raised in Vietnam, but our story starts way after he was born. So when I cook was born in 1898. Um, so like two centuries ago, and yet he's still relevant today. He was born the year after Jack the Ripper. His murders happen. Right. So after the first, like, recorded, quote, unquote, uh, serial killer happens. Right. We have When I Cook. So we're going to skip forward quite a bit to 1919. So I know we jumped a lot of history here, but most of that is just his childhood. Not incredibly related to what I want to talk about. He's in Paris at this point. So When I Cook becomes pretty politically involved, and he writes for an underground newspaper advocating Vietnamese independence. Now, a little bit of history. France controlled Vietnam at this point. It was it was a colony of France. So, and when did France take him over? I couldn't tell you, um, but I do know that his entire childhood they've had okay they've had uh, Vietnam as one of their kind of locales. It's very similar to how the British had America. There's there's no real reason other than they found it um, okay. as far as the British go. I don't understand all the policies that got France or when it happened yeah. or okay or who owned it before that but or was basically. It its own country? I mean, okay. if you think about it, you're in a country where you're even your your skin tone is not represented in in policy, and there's a lot of distance between civil rights for a Vietnamese citizen and a Frenchman, and the Frenchmen are not <laughs> they're not the natives. They don't belong there, and that's at least how when I Quook saw it. So he's advocating in France in kind of underground-ish newspapers. France did have freedom of speech, but it was kind of underground-ish newspapers for independence from France, uh, for a, a transitional government, for civil rights. And you know what? I think as an American, I can I can get with that. Right. That's your country. You were born there. You deserve to have your own flag. I, at I least agree. That's how I see it. So 
Something rather interesting had just occurred. This little spiff called the First World War had just gotten over. (laughs) and Just a small little thing that happened. Yeah, just a little thing. There was this thing called the Treaty of Versailles, and without boring everybody's socks off, the Treaty of Versailles was essentially everybody who's in charge of the countries that just killed each other gets together in a gilded room and sits on gilded chairs and says, how do we not do this shit? again may i remind you of this other spiff called world war ii <laughs> yeah that happened like very shortly after so clearly the policy works freaking great right but um you know i know that these guys had the best intentions mm-hmm. but there was something they missed here and something that would greatly impact the future many 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 decades later this was called the wilsonian moment that's the term that's been coined for it so Juan Icook sends this Basically, it's not like a declaration of independence, but it's like a request that says like, hey, we would love to own our own country. Here's the reasons why we should. And they cite, let me look at exactly what it's called, self-determination as outlined by the peace accords. Gotcha. um, As the reasoning. So it's almost like their way of declaration of independence, but rather than declaring it, they're asking for it. Yeah, because at the Treaty of Versailles, so keep in mind that every time someone won a war in World War I and World War II, a bunch of people that didn't know about the local indigenous peoples were like, oh, yes, let's go through and rewrite all the lines and make mm-hmm. sure that we cause a bunch of race wars. This is a brilliant <laughs> idea and it will cause peace. So essentially... That they, happens in every war. Yeah, and, and especially during World War One and World War Two. And so their thought was, hey, you guys are busy chopping up the map and handing out the spoils of war in the name of peace and democracy. While you're at it, could we have our country back? So we're at the Treaty of Versailles. There's all these stuffed shirts in a gold room that have, you know... I'm just imagining the Knights of the, of the Round Table meeting together. Picture something more Indiana Jones era, and you've got it right on the head. Okay. So these guys all get together. They rewrite how the map of the planet looks, essentially, at least within the areas affected. Because that who was, owns what, right? Yeah, because okay. Germany keeps saying, I want more, and France keeps saying, oh, we will fight you. Oh, never mind, never mind. America, please come fix this. <laughs> and that's basically what they've been doing for the last 10 years. History burn. So, um... <laughs> Basically, we, we have all these guys in the same room. Well, Juan Quirk, Juan I Quirk, rather, mm-hmm. finds out about this, and he's like, okay, we got all these guys in the same room. They send a letter of intent to the president of the United States, Wilson, and they send a letter to the president, well, he's the prime minister, actually, of France. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find the name here, George Clemenceau. Okay. Um, and George Clemenceau has just gone through World War One. Um you know, there's there's a lot that's going down, but despite trying really hard to get some face time with both of these guys, they're they're never admitted. They're never right. given time, and they're all they're asking is, "Hey, look, America, you fought a revolution mm-hmm. not that long ago, right? Like 1776 is when the revolution starts, right? Keep in mind, this is 19 1919, somewhere in there. So, I mean, yeah, it's been over a hundred years, but a hundred years is pretty, that's a lifespan. You you know, like, yeah. it's not that long. And they're like, hey, guys, look, French, this is French colonialism. This is what the British were doing. All we're asking, is, we're not asking for an armed insurgency. We're just saying, you need to tell Clemenceau what he's doing is not okay. Like, right. we have our own country. We have our own customs. We've had our own culture for generations and we're not allowed to have it. Yeah. And then nothing happened and no one cared. As far as we know, Wilson never read the letter, like. Really? Didn't even happen. I'm sure George Clemenceau was like, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, you know, they're, they're citing literal doctrines like self-determination outlined prior to the peace accords. And yet no one is listening. Well, that doesn't end well for them. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, when I quick was like, okay, well, fine. I'll just go back to writing, but I'm going to write twice as much now. Right. And I'm going to write 
more articles and I'm going to try to bring people to my cause. And at this point, he's kind of becoming a budding socialist. He's learning more about Leninism or uh, Marxism, Leninism, which are the concepts of socialism. And he's starting to think this is a good idea. Now, technically speaking, socialism in itself on its head at a defined level is a good idea. The concept that everybody has the same. It's and it's complete antithesis to capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I don't agree with socialism, but on its head, it makes sense, especially when you come from a country full of poor rice farmers, right? Right. The concept that you have this huge amount of nobility living in castles and things like that, and a ton of people out in rice fields for the entirety of their lives, which are very short and cut very, very short well, most yeah. of the time, uh, is, is not fair. And so he's very into this whole school of Leninism, Marxism, and he found something that will turn out to be rather, uh, rather important. But before we get into that, I would like to take you to another country entirely. America. Spain? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to America. <laughs> so the reason I was thinking Spain is because I know that the Vietnamese language, it was changed a lot because of Spain, but I might be mixing that with France. Basically, if you were a country that was agrarian and subsisted on something, some other country came in and told you how to speak a different language. Right, but I mean, even just like the writing of their language changed because they use... The alphabet. English literature, yeah. or English letters, as yeah, opposed to they, Chinese yeah. capitalism and mm-hmm. capital. Wow, Chinese uh, symbols, symbolism. Um, but I do want to take you back. Okay, I want to take you back to America. So it's it's seventeen sixty five. The Stamp Act has just been passed. Um, basically, the Brits were like, "Yo, we just fought the French off for a decent amount of time, and it cost us a lot of blood and treasure. So we feel like because we chose to fight the French off without you telling us to fight the French off because you really couldn't care less because you're already there, you should pay for that because we're broke. <laughs> and America was like, I-, I don't understand what you're saying. Great Britain was like, let me reiterate. We have no money. Give us money. And America was like, I don't follow. <laughs> and Great Britain was like, say what? All right, taxes it is. So mm-hmm. they start taxing everything that they can conceivably tax. They made a tax that said we could only import sugar. To Vietnam. No, to here, to America. Keep in mind, this is 1765. Okay. So we could only import sugar. And at this point, tea is a staple and you need sugar for tea. Right. So you can't grow sugar cane. And there's not a ton of great places to grow it in America. But, like, you couldn't. You physically couldn't. And you had to import it. So they could tax it. And so America's like, the hell is this? Right. And so they just start doing all of these things to basically just get money from America. And they do it all in the name of... Well, we fought this war for you. You didn't ask us to fight. So the Stamp Act was any like legally binding document, wills, uh, deeds, things like that, had a stamp, and then you paid a tax for it. So basically, you had to pay for paper. Right. And then you had to pay for the stamp on that paper, but you weren't paying the merchant you bought it from. You were paying the British government. And who doesn't love paying a government where they're not represented, by the way? Right, absolutely. There was no American representatives in the whatever their part. I think it's the parliament. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, made them feel very, very misunderstood. So they're protesting the fact that they have no say in their own governance. They're their own country, ostensibly, even though they're controlled by Great Britain. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would too, right? Right. So, of course, the natural thing for Great Britain to do in 1767 is levy more taxes. So that's when they start levying taxes on glass and on building supplies and on tea, which leads us, of course, to the well-known Boston Tea Party. So essentially the Boston Tea Party happens. It kind of blows up in their face and there's more troops that show up. By the way, in 1767, the Boston Massacre occurred partially because there was a troop buildup. Mm-hmm. So they sent more troops over so there'd be a larger troop presence to avoid any rebellion, right? Right. More troops show up in 1773, and that's when they say, you know what? 
this isn't just going to happen in Massachusetts. This is going to happen everywhere. So the right. Continental Congress is formed and they write um, a bill that they call the petition. Um, and it's the petition to the king. So it's actually sent over to Great Britain and it's not a declaration of independence. It's a petition that says, hey, these acts are intolerable. They actually called them the intolerable acts. Okay. And they said, we're not going to do this anymore. And that's kind of when the fit hits the shan. Um, Great Britain didn't care. So uh, that's when America said, cool, these are the Minutemen, up yours. <laughs> and we started a war and we got our asses handed to us for a fair amount of it. And then we fought back. And right. as much as I love Britain, we're now independent. But essentially, we have all of this stuff that, has, that goes down, right? Now, I'm going to take you back a few years forward. It's 1920. We're back in Paris. So upon hearing that the Versailles treaties have been signed and that they don't care, Wynne is essentially just like, you know what? <laughs> cool. I'm going to now write some more underground stuff, and I'm actually going to start forming something of meaning. And I mentioned before he formed a group, and that group is called the French Communist Party. Oh, great. So real quick, without getting way, way ahead, um, America is terrified of communism for reasons that are relatively understandable. A lot of communist regimes turned out to become very authoritarian. It really didn't have much to do with communism. It had more to do with authoritarianism and classism. Right. But essentially, all of the government at that point was convinced that if you were a communist, you were out to destroy capitalist America and you right. hated America. And there was this dillhole named McCarthy that would like literally go around and witch hunt people if he thought they were communists. My mm -hmm. grandfather saw a video of me five or six years ago where I'm wearing this Russian Musa hat that has a KGB logo on the front because I thought it was funny. And he's like, you got to be careful. They'll think you're a communist. Like he was dead serious. So this like, you're like grandpa. That was years ago. Grandpa McCarthy's been dead for so long, <laughs> but, but he genuinely had like fear in his eyes. Like there was a fear of communism. And so there was this concept that if one country becomes communist, the next country over will, it was called the domino effect and they would mm -hmm. all become communist. And of course we can't have people having another ideology other than what America has. Right. Of course that would just lead to free thinking. So essentially they were very concerned um, about communism, but this is, Prior to that, this is before we were really ultra super worried about communism. Mm -hmm. um, it's 1920. So World War II hasn't even happened yet. Right now, we're still a little bit concerned about this budding genius in Italy named Mussolini who does not represent the rest of us. Right. But um, essentially, he forms this French Communist Party. The trouble is he has a very difficult time focusing the French, by definition, French Communist Party on the plight of French Indochina. Okay. Which is where he's from. That's mm -hmm. Vietnam. And he's trying to focus them on the fact that, yo, guys, this is not your country. This is your country. You're in your country. You don't need other countries. We right. deserve independence. And so he writes a lot more pro-Vietnamese articles, but this is where they take a turn. They start becoming more nationalist. We've talked about this before. Nationalism in and of itself is not bad. It's a pride in one's nation. Nationalism as a form of governance can be very bad yeah. because it's a view of your, of your country as superior in some cases. In this case, I don't think it was quite that way, but it was very, very focused on a Vietnamese state and whatever it took to make that happen. Right. Sorry, just to clarify the timeline, this is 1920s. Yeah, we're, 20, we're, 20s we're, in, we're, on, we're in 1920 period. Okay. And so having been rejected by the Treaty of Versailles, having been rejected by all of these different people that he's tried to just like say, hey, there's a country, it's not yours, can we have it back? He's approached by a certain person and his name is Dmitry Malyunsky. And that name sounds super familiar. He's a Russian. Um, he's in Russian parliament, like they're the USSR's yes, parliament. I think that's where I know it. And he sponsors a trip for Wynn to the Soviet Union. 
And in the Soviet Union, he goes to university. He learns a lot about communism and he learns a lot about socialism. Remember, he's a pretty avid socialist. Mm -hmm. Communism and socialism aren't necessarily too far apart. They're not the same, but they're not a bridge apart. Right. Um, but he learns a ton about this and he starts to kind of internalize these concepts. He's not necessarily indoctrinated, but he's a very intelligent person. I mean, he's already, he studied at university, which for somebody who grew up in a mud hut is incredible. Right. And so he spends some time in, uh, in, in Russia. And then in 1931, he migrates to Hong Kong. And this is where things kind of come to a head. He unites two communist parties that already exist in Hong Kong under the title the Communist Party of Vietnam. Mind you, he's in Hong Kong. A lot of these fighters end up becoming fighters in Vietnam later on. Mm -hmm. And they're actually like fighters. They're, they're soldiers. They're communist soldiers that are prepared to fight for communism. Right. Well, he gets arrested, unfortunately, um, in the process. And at this point, the British still owned Hong Kong. Okay. I mean, they, they were, it was kind of the equivalent of right. what was happening with the French. But when the French ask for his extradition, because he's essentially stirring up very anti-French sentiment, mm -hmm. the British go, oh, whoops, uh, yeah, he's dead. And the French are like, what? <laughs> he, he died? You, you killed him. And they're like, yeah, he's dead. He's super dead. Well, then oh, in 1933, no. they very quietly release him back into Russia. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so they didn't want to release him to the French for reasons I couldn't find. My my assumption would be they caught him and there was this whole like kind of feeling of, well, we caught him, he's ours. Yeah. We don't want to give him back to France. I don't right. really think there was any anti-French sentiment. It was more just like, no, he's our, we, we, we got him, it was ours. Yeah. So he stays in prison for looks like about three years. Do you think it had something to do with maybe they could end up claiming... Vietnam at some point. I'm not by really not giving sure. them back to the French, and because I, I he was a revolutionary, it. they were both ally powers, so it so. it just wouldn't have worked. But I, gotcha. I don't really know. I couldn't find anything on it. But basically, okay. they keep him in prison for three years, and they toss him back to Russia. And I think part of that thought process was, you go hang out with the rest of the commies. Bye. Gotcha. So they give him back to Russia, where he goes to the Lenin Institute and becomes a teacher. Like oh he's a gosh. professor in one of the most prestigious schools in Moscow, mm -hmm. like in the heart of it. Jeez. Well, we're going to fast forward a few years to okay. 1938. He's now in China, which is another communist country. Mm -hmm. And he's serving on the board of their armed forces. So he's like an advisor to these armed forces. He, it's, his exact title is really unknown, but it says serves as Chinese communist or serves as advisor to Chinese communist armed forces. So he's just moving on up. So yeah, he's, he's basically, what my thought is, is he doesn't have a ton of military acumen up to this point, but he's very indoctrinated in the communist ideal. And so he fits well within this kind of chain. Right. And then in 1940, this is where something rather big happens. You see, Wynn has gone by a lot of names. Almost 200 monikers have oh, been attributed to him because in Vietnamese, it's very easy to basically give yourself a title because the words are very short. Um, at least we would think so in English. Right. He goes by this one name. And I mean, you guys might have heard of him. His name was Ho Chi Minh. Um, and Ho Chi Minh is pretty well known if you are at all familiar with the Vietnam War as the name and face of the North Vietnamese army the army that killed a bunch of American soldiers, the army that killed off a lot of people in very violent ways, and the army that might not have existed if Wilson had taken the time to read a piece of paper back in 1919. Right. So, real quick, I want to take you guys to 1940, because they're 1941. He's now going by Ho Chi Minh, which means the Enlightened One, by mm -hmm. the way. It's not his actual name. His name was 
when I quuck. Um, <laughs> so he starts heading up this group called the Viet Minh. And the Viet Minh are just like a ragtag insurgency group. Like they're they're armed with like World War One weapons. And at this point, Japan is with Germany, and they're the two most advanced nations in the world. Japan took over a fair amount of China during the mm-hmm. Second World War. There's not a ton of history about it, but they were brutal. Yeah. And they start expanding into East Indochina, which is where Vietnam is. Well, he's already fought super hard to get the French out. And the French are like, well, frick this I'm out. And they're like, mm-hmm. bounce the heck out. So he's like, all right, well, cool. Let's go fight some Japanese people. So he starts these aggression campaigns against the Japanese army with this ragtag group called the Viet Minh. And they're actually doing a pretty good job. They're like doing first strikes on Viet or on uh, Japanese forces. They're retaining the space pretty well. And basically they're kind of kicking and taking names. Like it's right. sort of impressive, especially when you're fighting a group that built the first single engine, you know, airplane that can, that weighs less than anything else. It's just, it's insanely cool to me. Yeah. Um, the only issue is, on the other side of that coin, there are still French forces in in uh, Vietnam because it's still a French colony. They can't just bounce. They still have groups of French military, groups of French dignitaries that are there. So they start attacking them too. And they're doing a pretty good job. They're, they're fighting with guerrilla tactics, which is exactly what we did in the uh, war for or the American Revolution. And more than likely, they uh, they got more assistance than we realized because in 1941... They meet with uh, with somebody called the OSS. Any any guesses on who the OSS were? OSS. OSS. I would have thought Russia, but I know they're the OSS stands for the Office of Strategic Services. Um, they're a United States paramilitary group. Oh, okay. And now they're known as the CIA. Oh, great. So that happens. <laughs> Oh, sometimes I look at our country. Anyway, so it's 1941. They start having unofficial talks with the OSS. Mm -hmm. Then in 1945, Ho Chi Minh meets personally with the OSS. Like one-on-one, personally with the OSS. Now, did they think that they were actually like helping him? I'm just trying to think along their lines. They're enemies of the Japanese. They're enemies of of the people we're still at war with, ostensibly. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend till that friend turns around and bites me in the Mm. ass, which is what should literally be on the front of the CIA building. Right. Um, So they meet personally with the OSS, and they agree to start giving intelligence to the OSS on Japanese troop movement. This is very close to the end of the war, right? This is 1945. Um, But in return, they wanted what they called an open line of communication with the Allies, which I don't feel is an unfair trade. They just want the ability to talk to America, which is all that he's wanted since 1919. Right. Right. So they have this open line. The OSS agrees and sends a team in to train the Viet Minh, like to train them in how to more efficiently kill the Japanese. There's one minor issue there. The French are still there. Yeah. So (laughs) real quick, we just trained an insurgent group in an allied nation on how to kill those allies. Mm -hmm. And we did it without blinking an eye because... Yeah, I got no notes on why. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't have anything. (laughs) So, August 1945 rolls around, and there's something called the August Revolution. The August Revolution is when Ho Chi Minh, armed to the teeth, trained by the OSS, storms pretty much every French place, and by September of 1945, Vietnamese independence is declared. They have Saigon, they've killed off a bunch of French people, they've taken the country over, and they control the nation at this point. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go much past there as far as Vietnamese history goes, 
But I do want to go a little bit past there to a different country. Okay. So the year is 1979. Okay. And I know we're jumping ahead, but this relates, I promise, because we're going to go back. <laughs> right. 1979, and we're in Afghanistan. So there's an Afghani warlord, and I literally spelled his name out phonetically because I can pronounce it, but I, for some reason you put me in front of a mic and I turn into like an 85-year-old man trying to read a Mexican menu. <laughs> like, I like the gor- gordita. Gordata. Gordata. But, um... So there's an Afghani warlord, and his name is Golbadin Hekmatar. Golbadin Hekmatar. Keep that in mind. It's very important. I'm going to try really hard, but I'm really bad with names. So, so. I'm just going to I'm going to paint an image for you, okay? Okay. It's early afternoon slash early evening, somewhere in there, or late afternoon, early evening. And he shakes hands with a white-skinned American who will remain nameless, but he's somebody who's involved in a certain special forces unit. Hitler. Uh, oh, no, this is the 70s. Sorry. Close, but Hitler's been dead for 40 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he shakes hands with a U.S. military advisor as the president of the United States authorizes $50,000 in assistance for a program to arm the forces against Soviet aggression. Keep in mind, this is about ideology once again. Yeah. We are literally giving people firearms and training because we don't like the way they think and we don't want them to think like somebody else. Mm-hmm. By 1989, so 10 years later, this program annually costs not $50,000, but $30 million. That is taxpayer money coming out of the pocket of you, me, and Joe Everyman. This group that, uh, that, he is, that they're arming and they're training, at that point didn't have a tag name. They were, they were loosely affiliated as under, under the warlord, but they did go on to be named something called the Taliban. And the Taliban played an integral role in 2001 in taking Mm -hmm. down the Twin Towers. So, real quick, like, um, the Viet Minh became the Viet Cong. Right. The Viet Cong killed a lot of American soldiers. I think 200,000 plus American men and women died in that war. Mm -hmm. 2,000 people died in the Twin Towers. Remember that guy I told you about, Heck My Tar? Mm Mm-hmm. In the 90s, he was chilling with this guy named Osama bin Laden. And in 2002, he was spotted by military intelligence chilling with Al-Qaeda. No. So real quick. I didn't know this. We're going to get a lot more in-depth into this in future episodes, guys. But I just want you to remember something. We always say that if you don't, <laughs> if you don't read history, you're doomed to repeat it. If you don't think about what's happened before, you're going to do it again. It's accurate. Absolutely. Yet it seems like our government and our politicians see as far in front of them as suits their current political campaign. And I'm looking at you, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> He's calling people out. <laughs> like, hopefully one day before your jowls fall off, you'll listen to this episode and you'll realize that you no longer represent the American people. But either way, for real, the CIA trained the Viet Cong. They trained the Viet Minh. Mm-hmm. And... The difference, of course, between the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Viet Minh, and the Viet Cong is that the Taliban has always had kind of the same idea. Kill Americans, do it quick. The Viet Cong could have not existed had we just given them independence, which is something that we fought for, something that we hold up, something we wave flags about every 4th of July. Mm -hmm. But we were unwilling to do anything about it in 1919. And because of that, 200,000 plus American soldiers died in Vietnam in a country fighting for something they didn't know, fighting for something our presidents didn't even have a set objective for. And that brings us to our point here on uh, PONG. Think for yourselves. 
Mm-hmm. Vote with your conscience. You have the right to believe whatever you want. You have the right to do whatever you wish. But the only way that you can affect change, that you can keep us from arming another Taliban, that you can keep us from arming another Viet Cong, that you can tell the people who make the decisions that they need to listen is through voting. Go out and vote. Go out and be a part of the change. That's what we're here for. Well, and something I want to add in here, too, is all he had to do was read a letter and just take action for it. And I mean, it wouldn't have been easy, but he would have had the knowledge at least. And that's the thing is he would have had the knowledge to either deny, reject, or approve, we know. But I mean, ignorance is the bottom line here. And he didn't help where it needed the help needed to be. And look at what the butterfly effect turned it into. Yeah. And I think ignorance, when it comes to voting, just voting with ignorance is kind of the same way. Make sure to look into and read, learn about everybody that you're voting for, learn about the laws you're voting on. Because just going into with ignorance or just because, oh, my friend told me to vote for this one, so that's what I'm doing. Or my parents are Republican. Yeah, exactly. I mean... I feel like that's ignorance is not bliss here. Ignorance is definitely going to cause a bigger butterfly effect in the future. And I don't want to end this on a downer note, but I just want <laughs> to end. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I don't want to end this on a downer note at all, but I do just want to remind our listeners one more time. The death total from direct effects between 9-11 and between the Vietnam War is at least 202,000 people. And that is all because... We were fighting wars over things that didn't matter. We were fighting wars over ideology. We were fighting wars using other people. We were fighting wars by training people to kill us when we came back. Yeah. The best thing that America can do, at least in my opinion, once again, this is my opinion, to look at what it's doing before it puts its foot down. Be a part of that change. Be a part of that change at a social level. Obviously, you can't stop World War II, but, <laughs> right. but be a change at the at the lower levels here. You guys can do that. We believe in you. That's why we're here. This gives us the opportunity to share that. We'd love to get your comments on this. Mm-hmm. We'd love to get any information you have. We'll include that for you. Those who cannot learn history are doomed to repeat it. I'm Zane. And I'm Kyle. Have a good night. To keep up to date on what's happening on the podcast, follow us on Instagram at guysparanormal. Also, if you have any stories you want to share with us, email us at pnormalguys at gmail.com.